This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, can be found on page 984 of your pew Bibles. Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is Mark. And if we haven't met before, um, I'm glad that you're here. Welcome. Hey, this... uh, this text today is really dense. It's, um, it's full of lots of stuff. Lots of meaningful, deep explanations and powerful exhortations for our lives. So let me say from the beginning that I'm not going to get through very much of it today. We're actually taking two weeks on this, so I'm just going to kind of give us... Um, <clears throat> I'm going to brush into it at the second half of the sermon today. And then the front half is, is I want to bring us back up to speed and spend some time doing a recap from how far we've come in Colossians so far before we move forward. And before I do that, before I do that, I want to pray for us. So would you all bow your heads uh, with me and, and pray. Lord God, your word says in Isaiah 45, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. And then again, later in Isaiah, you say, come, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Lord God, we don't want to strive with you or against you. We want to eat what is good. 
We want to be satisfied in what you have to offer. We don't want to kick and bristle and push against you. So would you reveal to us our own hearts so, you, so that we can, uh, we can repent, we can confess, we can lay down things that we hold on to so that we can submit every, every place in our lives, like squeeze it out to the corners of our lives for us to submit to you everything that we have and everything that we are. There's no place in our life that's off limits. You get to say. You get to decide. So Holy Spirit, would you convict us and would you comfort us? Would you strengthen us? And would you point to places that we're off track? Shine light. Shine more light, we ask this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, remember this <clears throat> this church in Colossae is a, is a pretty young church, okay? It's maybe 10 years old. And like, like much of the letters in the New Testament, we should expect to find similarities between these Christians and ourselves. It was a young church that was planted by a man named Epaphras. And Paul, the writer of this letter, he's never, he's never been there before, However, this church is a result of his apostolic ministry. And so Paul is still invested in these people. He's invested in their maturity. He's invested in their increasing love and devotion. He's invested in their growth in the gospel. Some writers compare the town that this letter was written to, Colossae. They compare it to Rust Belt cities in the U.S., cities like Detroit or Cleveland, which I'm sure are cool cities in their own right. But because of, their de of the decline of the kind of American industrial realities, the factories and the mills and the mines, those cities aren't what they once were, okay? And at one time, Colossae had been a significant city. It had been an influential city, but by the time this letter is written, it's experienced a long era of decline. And by this time, Colossae isn't any longer a major player or a city with influential power. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Paul, having apostolic authority in the early church, is writing because he's been made aware of this church and some stuff going on that he wants to address. And there's also places where he wants to encourage them and he wants to combat undefined kind of false teaching that was in the church at the time, and he writes, and he takes a certain argument, or he takes a certain pathway as he explains and exhorts and rebukes or encourages these people. From verse 3 throughout our text and kind of throughout the rest of the book of Colossians, Paul's weaving together an argument that's really beautiful. It's, like, it's this kind of tapestry that he's kind of, he's kind of laying out and it weaves certain themes and concepts back and forth so that much of the letter builds on itself and it reiterates much of what's been said previously in different sections of the letter. The, 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 the different sections and concepts and ideas in this letter come up over and over again because they're constantly interconnected. They're, they are woven together in reality. You can sketch out the fabric or, and, you can, and you can look at it and you can see that the same technique is used in different places or the same colors and materials are constant throughout. Concepts that if they aren't identical, they at least rhyme are throughout the letter of Colossians. And a few things that I 
I want to summarize or highlight are things like constant prayerfulness throughout the first chapter and a half, or the person of Christ, or gratitude and the gospel and its fruitfulness in our lives. We see gratitude woven throughout the letter. We see the gospel and its implications of, and implications of the gospel being uh, highlighted and re-highlighted. You see Christ come up over and over and over again. It's like the gospel, it's like the gospel in this letter is held up and then it's stared at and talked about and pointed to and light is shine on it. And then, and then Paul kind of turns it just a little bit. And then he does the same thing and he goes at it and at it and at it. And then he turns it just a little bit more and he goes from a different angle and he, and he hammers that one. It's the same thing with Christ. He kind of holds up Christ and says, look at him from this angle. This is what he's done. Look at this, look at him from this angle. This is who he is. Look at him, look at him from this angle. This is, this is how powerful the gospel of Christ is in our lives. He's explained and worshiped and adored Christ and applied and applied Christ to our lives from all kinds of angles, even just so far. With constant, with a constant kind of aroma throughout the book, a constant character throughout the book of gratitude, of prayerfulness, of a life that's pleasing to God. And all of this because of and for and moving towards in hope, Jesus Christ. So verse three, we see him thank God. Chapter one, verse three, we see him thank God. He says, we always thank God for you. And we thank God because of your faith in Christ then and because of your love for one another now and because of your hope for the future to come. And that's why we thank God, because you heard and you embraced, and now you're living out the gospel. We see prayer, gratitude, Christ, gospel, and the gospel's fruitful always, always. The gospel always bears fruit as long as it's received in faith. If there's not fruit, then it hasn't been received in faith. Continuing in verse 9, we see prayer again. We see fruitfulness again. We see increasing in knowledge and understanding. Fruit in the manner of our lives. Living lives that please the Lord. Living lives that endure. And living lives that give thanks to God for the reality of forgiveness given to us. Prayer and Christ and faithfulness. God the Father and the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul explains that he is an apostle of Christ, a servant, a minister. Paul gets his marching orders from Christ. And in verse 3, he says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ, because you heard the gospel from some other guy who's also a faithful minister of Christ, because of redemption and the forgiveness of our sins that comes as the Father takes us out of the domain of darkness and puts us into the domain of Christ. He transfers us to a different domain, a different kingdom. So much reference, so many references to Christ thus far. And then Paul takes a, a deeper focus in the letter and adds even more texture and detail through verses 15 and 20 of chapter 1. We find out more about Christ and who he is. Paul stops and adds detail upon detail upon detail of, what's, of, of, of different realities of Christ. He's the image of God. 
But not only that, he's firstborn in status and rank over all creation. But not only that, he's the power of God for creation at all. Everything that's been created has been created by him. And all that is not God, Christ created. But not only that, everything that was created was created for him. It was created by him. He did it, and it was created for him. What's all this creation doing everywhere? How did it get here? What's, it, what, what, what's going on? Well, Christ did it. He's the one responsible for all of it. And why? He did it for himself, for his glory. And the why is it's for him. And not only that, but he holds it all together. And then once Paul adds more texture and dimension to who Christ is, he adds more texture and dimension to the domain of darkness that we were delivered from. Verse 21 says, once you were alienated from Christ, you were hostile toward Christ in your mind. Your mind was hostile toward God and you didn't have the fruitfulness that comes from faith in the gospel. You were doing evil deeds. I was doing evil deeds. And that's not the domain that you live in anymore. That's not who you are anymore. And your fruitfulness comes as and if you don't shift from the gospel that you heard. And now he adds even more layer about the suffering that he endures for the sake of the church. And he suffers with joy for the church. He suffers with joy for the church. And then Christ is revealed as a, as a mystery once hidden, but now not hidden any longer. Revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why we proclaim Christ, and it's also why we don't proclaim anything else. It's why we stand on Christ as our only firm foundation, and it's also why we don't stand on anything else. It's why we exhort and train and warn and rebuke and admonish to present everyone complete in Christ and Christ alone. I struggled, I struggled to get a kind of like uh, good illustration for what I was experiencing even as I was uh, studying and meditating and reading through these different uh, verses this week. So I'm going to try it out on you all and uh, we'll find out how it goes. It's as if it's as if Paul has handed us a telescope to see Christ in his gospel, to, to look at a far off star. And then he says, wait just a second. As you look at this star, you see the telescope, you actually get to see the star up close as you look through the telescope. And then he says, now wait. And he zooms out a little bit more. And you see even more of this glorious reality that surrounds the star in the, in the galaxy that it's a part of. And then he says, just wait. And he zooms out more. And you see multiple galaxies and, and realities and glories of Christ as you zoom out further and further and further and the scene becomes bigger and more majestic and more powerful and more weighty. Or you can think about it kind of backwards as well and say you went out in the evening and you looked at the night sky and then he hands you a telescope and he says, yeah, that looks really pretty and beautiful, all those stars. But then he hands you a telescope and zooms into one section and you're blown away by it as you see it in more detail that you didn't even know was there. As more um, texture and colors and realities are um, available to you that, that weren't there before. And then you zoom back out and you go to a different corner of the sky and you zoom back out and then you go to a different corner of the sky and, and 
And, and, and before you know it, you realize that there are depths and layers and realities to the night sky that you never knew were there before. And all of them are overwhelming, overwhelming and unreal in glory and majesty and beauty and depth. Discovery upon discovery upon discovery of detail and majesty. Discoveries up and down and left and right. Anywhere you look at Christ and his gospel, there's endless opportunity to take in more. More. There's endless opportunities to be grateful. Endless opportunities to pray. To have a prayerful spirit. To see more. To know more. Be strengthened by more. Understand more fully. And there's always more to be grateful for. More opportunity to live a life pleasing to him. A life with more fruit. More good works. More patience. And more joy. And Paul does that because he has this kind of holy agenda. And that's, and that's what gets us to our text today. He wants us to be captured by that kind of Christ. He wants us to be transfixed on that Jesus Christ. He wants us to be captive to this Christ. And he wants us to be captive to this Christ for a reason. It's so that we won't be captured by anything else. So let me, let me shift in our morning from a kind of recap to a question as we begin looking at these specific verses, especially verses 8 through 10. And that question is, why on earth would we be duped by deception or, or any kind of empty philosophy? What, what appeals about those other things that would turn us away from the kind of glorious picture that he has painted for us so far? What sets the trap of the philosophies that take your heart away from the gospel, which is to say away from Christ, even while going to church week after week after week? To our, if we look at our text today, I want to spend the rest of our morning kind of unpacking verses 8 through 10 in just two really simple movements. I want to talk about how you're going to be captured by something, and only Christ is worth being captured by. So verse 8, see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity, deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. Friends, if it isn't, if it isn't Jesus this morning, it's something. It's something. Everyone will be captured by something. I don't know where you are in your life, and I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know what the specifics are, the details are. I don't know what wins your confidence. I don't know what allures your faith. I don't know what draws out your hope. I don't know what in your life wins your trust and hope and faith, but something does. Something already does. Something always does. I don't know what emptiness is deceiving you in your life and telling you that everything's going to be fine or telling you that everything's going to be okay. Just stick with sin or stick with me. Stick with your flesh and keep hiding. 
Everything's going to be okay. You'll never get caught. Or I don't know what other kind of lies are trying to tell you to ramp up your commitment to your own cynicism or keep deceiving everyone around you or keep trusting in whatever personality profile has co-opted the gospel and taken over all of your thoughts and all of your language. Let me say it like this. I don't know what carrot is at the end of the stick that kind of um, captures your attention and tries to take you away from the gospel. You could be chasing happiness in some way. You could be chasing happiness and fullness outside of a biblical sexual ethic, which is defined as chastity outside of marriage or the lifelong covenantal union of one man and one woman in marriage. Or you could be chasing the happiness, quote unquote, that comes from your non-Christian friends not thinking that you're a weirdo. Or maybe, yeah, maybe that's what tempts, tempts you to be ashamed of the gospel or hide it. We need to be on guard, and we need to be on guard especially as church people to make sure that we don't read texts like today's text and let it wash over us and think that we're good or we think that it doesn't apply to us because we have all our theological ducks in a row or we tithe or we show up and serve on Sundays. We still need to ask ourselves what empty philosophies are tempting me. What's enticing to me? What empty philosophy is trying to capture me or capture my faith or capture my hope or capture my loves? And Paul isn't talking about theology or philosophy per se. There's, there's real teaching here being mixed in with the gospel that he's trying to warn them against. And the challenge that I have this morning is to convince you believer and unbeliever, that you're being enticed by something already and all the time. For the non-Christian this morning, you're enticed by sin. That comes in the form of self-glorification. It comes in the form of self-focus. It comes in the form of what the Bible calls idolatry. You're enticed by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, but sin's, sin's a slave master. That's what the Bible teaches. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're, not, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're caged already. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're captured and enslaved to sin already. Sinful lusts and sinful passions and sinful desires and behaviors. You're hostile in your mind toward God and doing evil deeds that match evil desires. That's what the carrot is that you're chasing. And the Bible's clear that the wages of sin is death. And that's why Paul reminds us in this text, hey, once you were dead, once you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Or in Romans 6, it says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone to be obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey. And that's either sin, which leads to death, or obedience to Christ, which leads to righteousness. Romans 6 also says, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Human beings aren't neutral. Our hearts aren't neutral. You don't arrive on the scene a blank slate. You're born sinful, which is to say you're born a slave to sin. 
We're born by nature, children of wrath because of our sin. And there's no, there's no hope outside of the gospel. And our text today isn't written primarily to unbelievers. Paul says early on in this letter that he is writing to saints and faithful brothers with this warning. This means that if you're a Christian this morning, don't let anything take you captive, even though you're tempted to be caged by deceits and empty philosophy. Even as Christians, we're still enticed by other things. We're enticed by ideas and concepts and philosophies that are according to the world and according to human tradition, and they're not according to Christ. You, you, might, you might be this morning, you might be desiring to increase your own kind of spirituality. You might be desiring intensified growth and maturity. You might want to be, in biblical language, you might want to be complete. And in our text, the desire that these, that the, that these Christians have, that desire it was, is what makes the enticement possible at all. Your desire for something good is what makes the enticing deceit plausible. That's why Paul says earlier, don't be deceived by plausible arguments. You don't, you don't become, we don't become obsessed with new fads and ideas. We don't become obsessed with things like the Enneagram because we don't care about self-knowledge at all. We don't become obsessed with personality profiles or tips and tricks and trends because we're uninterested in growth or change or maturity. We are interested. We are obsessed with improving our quality of life in listening to podcasts or Instagram or different things so that we can learn new ways to add things to our life to bring improvement. And there's lots of things that fall into that bucket that are harmless. The point that Paul is making is that none of them can sink to the bottom of the deepest, strongest foundation of what orients you. We, we voraciously consume podcasts and books and blogs, news feeds and self-improvement theories because we want more self-knowledge. We want that kind of knowledge because it provides for us a version of fullness or completeness. But the book of Colossians is here for us this morning to remind us that even as those realities are in our lives, to not shift from the gospel that we heard. Deuteronomy 11.16 says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Warnings like that make sense because we're susceptible to turning away from Christ. And temptation makes sense for you and me because we are vulnerable. We're susceptible. And you and me are susceptible to, be, to being taken captive by empty deceits, empty ideas, empty philosophy. That's why this warnings in the Bible. Philosophy just means the love of wisdom, one commentator pointed out. And we've also already been told by Paul that in Christ are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Our flesh wars against our spirit and the temptation that you have and that I have tries to get us 
to trust and turn our attention mainly to something other than Christ. It tries to kind of Trojan horse in other ideas and realities and concepts into the part of you that gives things your trust, into where you assign dependence, into the place that you worship, which is to say into your heart. Empty things, empty tradition, hollow philosophy, bankrupt ideas. Paul's saying, don't be enticed with those other things. Be enticed by Christ instead. He's the one that, he's the one that completes a human being only and always and forever. Be enticed by Christ because, because, because the fullness that you're looking for resides in him. The fullness of deity dwells in him and only in him. And those are the only two options. There isn't a neutral position. There isn't a third way. There's Christ and being captured by him and there's everything else. And I tried this week, I tried this week to think of what those things are for us, for this, for this people not what they are in kind of like outside of this building, out in the culture in abstract ways that don't really hit our hearts in any specific ways. So I've tried to think of realities that will sting. So hopefully, hopefully those will be helpful. The first, one, the first one is don't be enticed by the empty idea or, or philosophy of the American dream or keeping up with the Joneses out here in our suburban context. The, the idea is don't let the desire for more and a desire for having more comfortable lives and a desire for a bigger house or a bigger retirement or a bigger barn, don't let that get the seat in your heart that only Christ can fill. And we don't do that by making a shrine to our big houses and burning incense to it. We do that by letting our affection for our house or our bank accounts grow bigger than they warrant, than they should. Grow bigger. Our trust in things around us and what we have actually tries to provide for us the kind of confidence that only Christ can provide or satisfy you more than it should or be the object of that, of your trust or the object of your confidence or the object of your security or be what makes will be what makes you uh, feel good about maybe looking down on other people. That's how a Christian in our modern context lets worldly, one way that they let worldly ideas and traditions of men creep in on territory in our hearts that only Christ can fill. And there's, and there's a flip side to that warning. You might, you might really find yourself in this room this morning and not care much at all about being rich and popular. You could have decided a long time ago that you're not going to be enticed by money or be enticed by the American dream or be enticed by keeping up with the Joneses, but you're enticed by looking humble or being humble. You're enticed by, by not doing things that you look down upon. You might... That, that, that reality might be what makes you feel good about yourself. And that's the enticement of religious self-righteousness. If you find yourself pointing out 
what other people are enticed by, or if you have an easy time pointing out what other people do that you would never do, then you might be enticed by self-righteousness. And that's just as empty. Those are two sneaky and subtle and uh, subtle ways that ideas creep into our hearts and we lean on them and rely on them more than Christ and the gospel. And only you and I can be honest enough to admit that we're trusting in our wealth or trusting in our pedigree or trusting in our looks or trusting in our education, or trusting in our accomplishments, or we might be trusting in our prominence in our specific field, or trusting in our own reputations. And only you can be honest enough to admit that you're trusting in your good works, or trusting in your own righteousness, or trusting in your good attitude, or hard work, or your generosity, or your piety, or trusting in your knowledge, or your love for this church, or trusting in your own humble reputation. Only you can be honest enough to admit that, and the answer the answer to both of those is always the same. Repent and turn from places where you've trusted in something else, where your mind and heart have seeped into spots where empty things are giving you satisfaction, and turn it back to Christ. Those, those two realities, the idea of stacking up things to make us feel like we're good enough, and then the idea of being self-righteous and, and trusting in our own good works, those are more conceptual, right? Like the difference between greed and stealing. Greed's a harder sin to identify because, you know, with stealing, there was something there and it's not there anymore because you took it. But greed's harder to uh, put your finger on. It's a little bit more slippery. You can have a lot of money and be greedy and you can have nothing and be greedy. It's, it's way harder to pin down. And pride in having a lot and kind of a false arrogance or self-righteousness in having not very much, both of those are more hard to notice. We have to be willing, be willing to look at our hearts and be honest. That's why I pray all the time that the Holy Spirit would convict us, and that the Holy Spirit would shine light on our hearts so that we would be able to see what's really there. There are other empty deceits and empty philosophies that tempt us and we should notice them by how they carry more weight in our hearts than they should. When we don't listen to God's word, but we listen to our own impulses instead. Or we don't listen to God's word and we trust in our own feelings instead. Living according to what's in your heart, mostly, mainly, isn't, isn't living according to Christ. Living by being oriented by what you feel is not living being oriented according to Christ. And Paul has this category where it's either according to these other realities or it's according to Christ. How we will live, what wins our attention and direction will always be one of those things. It'll be according to Christ or according to something else. It will be attached to something. 
Verses 8 and 9 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by empty philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And I agree with theologians that think that this is an explicit reference to demonic rulers and spiritual realities, the elemental spirits of the world. And we don't have to go looking for a demon under every rock, but there are powers in the world and there are gods with a little g at work to turn your attention towards them and away from Christ that set themselves up against Christ. And Paul's already explained that Christ is the head of all rulers and all powers and all dominions. That's why those other things aren't worth putting your trust in. He's the one in charge of everything. He's the head, which means he exists as the authority over everything. And the deception here is the same. It's around us today. We have superstitious trust that we put in strange, quote-unquote, gods in our lives. You don't need a Ouija board or a horoscope to be superstitious. We like to think of ourselves as more sophisticated than the ancient world, but we're really, we're really not. The human heart hasn't changed, okay? We make promises and pacts with our own superstitious leanings, especially with medicines or food. We make, we're super stip, superstitious about when things in our lives go good or bad. Oh, is that because I did the certain thing or I prayed this prayer the certain way? We're superstitious about prosperity and poverty. We're superstitious when we try to bargain with God to get him to do what we want or to get him to give us health or wealth or prosperity. Whether it's tradition and philosophy of elemental spirits or the traditions and philosophy of men, if it comforts you and orients you and sets your course and compass, then it's not Christ, it's bankrupt, it's empty. So up, up till now, I've spent all this time just trying to help us admit that we're enticed, even as believers who come to church on Sunday, we're enticed by non-biblical ideas and ideologies and philosophies and traditions that are empty and deceptive. We can be captured in our emotions and our trust and put them in other things. And when we're enticed by empty philosophy, we're vulnerable because of our desires, even good desires, like our desire to be spiritually mature, our desire for wholeness and fullness. That's why Paul moves the way he does. And this last, these last like five minutes and all of next week's sermon is going is to be to try to get us to see and understand that anything other than Christ that we're tempted to bring into our hearts for security or we're tempted to bring into our heart for safety or direction or, even, or to, to operate as our kind of emotional magic eight ball will let us down, will be empty. Anything, anything that we look to, Let's use the word that Paul does. Anything that we look to for fullness other than Christ pales in the comparison to him and what he offers. Only Christ is worth being captured by. Verse 9 and 10 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells 
bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Don't be captured by these other things because they aren't that. They aren't the fullness of deity. They aren't what Christ offers. Don't be captured by those other things because they're actually a a cheap, bankrupt imitation. Paul spends the rest of this section stacking up details about Christ that should win our trust and win our allegiance and win our focus and attention. Paul's stacking up reasons to help you fight any kind of enticement to anything else other than Christ. Verses 11 to 15 will stack up reasons and then in verse 16 he'll turn a corner and give us real life application on the ground for what that means for you. And what does it mean right now? What does it mean right now that we have been given fullness in him? One author puts it this way. God intends to flood the lives of men and women and ultimately the whole creation with his own love, power, and richness. And he has already begun to put this plan into effect through Christ and his spirit. That is the Colossians' inheritance in Christ. And they can want, they can want nothing more from any other source, end quote. Christ is worthy, and he's the only one worthy to be captured by. And more, when you're captured by Christ, when you're captured by Christ, you're actually set free from everything else. You're actually set free from everything else that's competing for the space in your life that only he can fill. You're set free from sin and you're set free from alternatives. 1 Peter 2.16 says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as bond servants of God. Being a servant of God is freedom. Being a slave to Christ is the only way to be free, free from sin and Satan and free from the fear of death. The false teaching in Colossae was trying to convince these believers that Christ wasn't enough, that he wasn't sufficient. In order to enter a new and more intensified kind of spiritual level, you needed to add other ideas or add other practices or add other rules and regulations to your faith in Christ. Most likely the thrust of the false teaching was that adding these things made you some kind of elite Christian, made you some sort of super spiritual believer. And Paul wants them to stay away from that reality, stay away from that idea, stay away from that stuff, and instead spend your time uncovering more of what Christ has done and who he is instead of trying to add something new or trendy or popular to who he is. Instead of looking for some flashy new Christian trend or philosophy or human tradition. Instead, spend your time peeling back the layers of Christ's glory in the gospel. Spend time uncovering more of his fullness, more of what he's done, more of who he is and how he's saved you. 
In fact, I'm tempted to say it's our boredom with Christ that motivates us to look for fullness anywhere else. But, but praise God, we can also repent for having dull hearts. We can repent for treating our status as sons and daughters of the living God as common or banal. We have a never ending stream of advertisement in the world that claims to have what you need. What you need for wholeness and fullness and freedom. To claim to have, it, it claims to have exactly what you need for whatever you're longing. It's, a, it's an endless stream of marketing and it says you need to get this new product you need to take a vacation to be happy. You need to treat yourself better or you need to eat this or buy that or take better care of yourself. You need, you need, you need, you need, you need. It's, it's constant and it's maddening because how do you know? How do you tell which thing you actually need and which thing you don't? How do you decide which things that you really should buy or have, right? There's always something new to sell to us and our hearts are always ready to believe it. Always, always ready to believe that something else will finally make us complete. And if you're trusting in Christ, if you're trusting for fullness in Christ, then you get to be free from all of those alternatives. The mysteries revealed. You're not missing some magic bullet to solve all your problems or relieve all your difficulties, whether emotional or mental or spiritual, physical, like all the things you think you need to be whole and happy and have the kind of joy that's talked about in the scriptures, to have the kind of confidence and faith that's talked about in the scriptures, to have the kind of meaningful existence that's demonstrated for us throughout the scriptures is in Christ and Christ alone. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean we're not going to struggle and struggle a lot sometimes. It doesn't mean we won't have challenges, but it does mean that they're going to be worth it. It doesn't mean that there won't be pain in your life. It does mean that the pain in your life will never be in vain. It doesn't mean that we won't agonize, but it does mean that our agony won't be for no reason or be for nothing. If we're in Christ, there's nothing in this life that can happen to us that God won't use in a loving way, in a redemptive way, for our good, Romans 8 tells us. And in closing, I want to appeal to us, appeal to us to sort of invite the Holy Spirit into your own kind of reflection and thoughts. Invite the Holy Spirit to uh, reveal to you a place in your life that you, you're putting your hope or trust or allegiance in something else other than Christ. I want to invite us to turn from those realities and return to Christ. And that's exactly what repentance means. It means turn from whatever you're looking to for fullness and security and safety and hope or love or spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Turn from whatever you've been deceived by and turn back to Christ. And because I know how much of, the, how much of you in this room and in this church 
are placing all of their hope and confidence on Christ, I get to say with Paul that I rejoice and I'm ecstatic to see the faith of this people, to see your sound doctrine and and it being lived out in your day to day. And I want to invite us, invite us to not shift from the gospel. Don't drift away from Christ. Instead, drill down deeper into who he is. It's a well and a bottomless fountain. So I'll end, I'll end with a verse from chapter, chapter one of Colossians. Chapter one, verses 22 and 23 says, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh, you, you who he has reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, and you don't drift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So that's why we proclaim Christ, and it's why we proclaim the gospel at the end of every single service. It's why we proclaim Christ and we take communion at the end of every service. That's what we're doing. We're proclaiming his death until he comes again. It is a faithful, faithful proclamation of Christ and who he is. And if you're here this morning and you put all of your hope and trust and faith for your righteousness and your standing before the living God, you put all of it in Christ and his work and his life and his death and his resurrection, then you're a Christian and we invite you to take communion this morning. The way that we take communion at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into the cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be two stations down here right in front of the podium, one in the balcony and one over to my left that is uh, gluten-free and single serve. And then further to the left, underneath the stained glass window, we'll have prayer ministers who would love to pray for anybody about anything, anytime. They're here every single Sunday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. I'm going to invite the musicians and the servers forward. Would you all bow your heads with me and pray as well? God, would you reveal to us sin in our lives? Would you reveal to us obstinance in our lives? Would you reveal to us places that we bristle at your direction? Would you reveal to us places that we strive against you as you change us and transform us? Would you reveal to us places that we strive against the living God in the ways that you discipline us, in the commandments or the direction that you give us in our lives? Would you reveal to us places that we're holding on to things for comfort, places that we're holding on to other things in our lives, other ideas or concepts or philosophies or ideologies? We're holding on to other things and we think that, it, that they uh, will provide for us what only you can provide. We think that they'll make us um, confident. We think that they will give us strength. We think that they will um, answer 
the longing questions of our hearts. We think that they'll give us forgiveness from sin and remove our guilt. Would you reveal to us places that we're hoping in other things besides you? Would you do that? Spirit of God, would you convict us and would you comfort us? And then would you strengthen our faith? Help us to confess and repent and believe as we come forward to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We ask all this in the name of Jesus.